The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to continue this morning our study on the spiritual gifts. We began looking at this last week. And we talked about the temporary nature of the gifts, which is very important for understanding. I defined a spiritual gift as a God-given capacity through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers the body. And it's so important that we understand the gifts are not natural abilities. They are not talents. They were supernatural. Now, in order to properly understand the spiritual gifts, you really need to know what time it is. In other words, you need to know what age you're living in. Are you in this age or are you in the age to come? You are in the age to come. You just need to know you're in the age to come. Now, Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and he's encouraging the believers at Rome to use their gifts according to the proportion of their faith. He says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Now he says here, having gifts, let us use them. And many today read this as if it was written today to them. And they're saying, see, spiritual gifts, Paul's telling us we need to use them. The us here is Paul and the first century saints at Rome. Now, I tried to demonstrate last week that all the gifts had ended with the end of the last days, with the end of the transition period, with the end of the Jewish age. The gifts were supernatural provisions during the second exodus or the transition period. And when the bride reached maturity and married Yeshua, the gifts ended. Now, let me say this, and please understand this. I'm not really sure why I have to say this, but this always ends up this way. I'm talking about spiritual gifts, okay? And I say the gifts ended. I'm not talking about what God can do and can't do. All right, people say, oh, you don't believe in miracles? Did I say that? No, I said the gifts ended, okay? God is a God of miracles. God can do whatever He wants to do because He's God. And God still does miracles today. There are people today that are being miraculously healed. All right? There's no question about that. I know several people who have been physically healed. Now, after last week's message, Bob Cruikshank Jr., he wrote me an email with this testimony. He said this, Growing up, my family was charismatic. When I was 14, I had a guest speaker one Sunday. He was a circus ringleader turned evangelist. That's almost comical to me, okay? That's a good fit, though. <laughs> he was a circus ringleader turned evangelist named Austin Miles. During the service, he had a word of knowledge, as they call it. He said, there's a young man here today who is in his early teens. You've been having severe sinus trouble for as long as you can remember. You get terrible headaches and earaches, specifically in your right ear. The Lord wants you to know that He's heard your prayers and all you have to do is reach out in faith and claim your healing. He said, that was me and I did. 
I have not had those sinus problems, headaches, or earaches since. They were gone instantly and have never returned. Prior to this, I had to go to the doctor every month and get tubes in my nose to flush out my sinuses. All right, so there's a testimony. You know, you hear this going on with this guy, and you know, you're like, well, what do you do with stuff like that? Listen, I never question or argue with people's experience. Your experience is your experience. My question is, is it biblical And to say something like this happened? Of course, because this same exact kind of thing happened to my lovely wife, Kathy, about 43 years ago. Right? Don't want to show our, don't want to show our age, but yeah, okay, 44 years ago. Um, she got up in the middle of the night to get our first daughter. She was still a baby, and she was seeing blurry. Everything was double. And so we took her to the doctor, and they said there was scarring on the back of their eye, her eye, and there was nothing they could do. And we're like, uh, that's not good. Of course, that's not too encouraging, you know. So we were at our house. There was another couple over there. I believe we were playing cards. And we had the 700 Club on the radio, listening to the radio. And Ben Kinchlow, I don't know if you remember, Ben Kinchlow was on 700 Club. And Ben Kinchlow had what they call a word of knowledge. And he said, there's a young woman having eye problems, and, you know, God is healing her. And Kathy said, that's me. And the next day she woke up, and her vision's been perfect ever since. Now, she still has that scar tissue. Because she goes to the eye doctor, and that scar tissue's still there, but she can see just fine. So, you know... But here's what you have to understand. These experiences are not the norm. They do happen. God, and again, God can do whatever He wants to do. You know, we talked last week, there were periods throughout biblical history of miracles. But God can do a miracle whenever He wants to. We need to understand that. And here's the, the thing we really need to understand. Salvation is a miracle. Okay? God takes someone who is dead and gives them life, spiritual life. That is a miracle. So yes, I believe God still does miracles. There's no question about that. I'm not saying He doesn't. We are talking about spiritual gifts. All right, That is the area we're dealing with. Now, I think that the subject of spiritual gifts is important because there's so much confusion in the church today. There's so much division in the church today over this issue. You know, are you a tongue speaker, a non-tongue speaker, and you know all this stuff going around here. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 that Garrett just read. I don't want you to be uninformed, okay, about spiritual gifts. So I want us to look at the subject of spiritual gifts again this morning. And I'm asking you, don't buy what I'm saying. Don't reject what I'm saying. Study it out, okay? Now, if you're someone who's, you know, you believe in the spiritual gifts, then just listen to what I have to say and examine it. And see, because I was there one time. I believed in spiritual gifts. I believed they were operative. I thought I did what was speaking in tongues. Okay? Until I did a study of church history and found out what I'm doing is not really tongues. We'll talk about next week what I was doing. Okay? Because <laughs> next week we're going to talk about tongues. So hang on for that. All right? So just be a Berean and, and look at the subject biblically, not emotionally. Paul tells the believers at Rome... That if they have the gift of prophecy, they're to exercise it properly. Now, prophecy was a very important gift in the early church. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said the most about prophecy and tongues of any of the gifts. Notice what Paul says about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Then in verse 3 he says, On the other hand, 
The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So prophecy was obviously a very important gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, And God has appointed the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. There seems to be an order of importance here. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Paul also tells us the importance of prophets in Ephesians. He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. So they, along with the apostles, were responsible for laying the foundation of the church. Brand new church, they're laying the foundation with what? Now, what we have to do, if we're going to talk about prophecy, is is we're going to have to kind of define it, okay? Because here's one of the problems. This has all kinds of definitions, and you'll see I'm going to show you a few in a minute here, all right? And so if you got the wrong definition, then you could say, oh yeah, that's, that's good, all right? What is the gift of prophecy? Well, John MacArthur says this. It simply means to speak before people. It's the gift of public speaking. That, to me, is one of the lamest, most watered-down definitions of prophecy I've ever heard. That's laughable. I guess right now I'm prophesying. Okay? And if you understand biblically what prophecy is, you realize how laughable this is. I got the, ref, the reference there because I want you to realize that, go look this up. He, he really said this, which is kind of surprising me. It's just public speaking, that's all it is. Do you know any unbelievers that do public speaking? But they have the gift? Listen, here's what I want us to understand this morning. Biblical, biblical prophets were men who spoke for Yahweh. Okay, look at Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet. God here is speaking to Moses about Yeshua. He says, I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this is what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who God puts his words in their mouth. They are speaking for God. A prophet is the mouth of God. He's a spokesperson for Yahweh. Now let me add this and then attempt to prove it. I think most people don't understand this. A biblical prophet is someone who has met with Yahweh. They have stood in the divine council and have been sent to speak for Yahweh. Anybody think of a a text that might back this up. Famous text. Isaiah 6. Isaiah is in the very throne room of God. And the angel comes and touches his tongue with the coal. And then God says, who will I send? He's in the throne room of God. Isaiah is in that throne room. He's meeting with God and God says, who will I send? And he goes, I'll go. That's a prophet. Let me show you some of this. Jeremiah 23, 15-18. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts concerning the prophets. Now, he's talking about the false prophets here. Jeremiah is. Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink. 
For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They're false prophets, so you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to listen to them. Filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. So they're not being, they're not true prophets. They're not speaking God's words. They say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. Boy, we got a lot of these people today in the pulpits, right? Everything, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. It's health, wealth, you know, do what you want. It's all good. For who among them, he says, has stood in the counsel of Yahweh to see and to hear his word? He's saying, see, these false prophets, they haven't been in the council. They don't know his word. Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Now, some scholars see verse 18 as a rhetorical question here, emphasizing the hidden intentions of God. In other words, who is beyond human, God's beyond human perception and knowledge. We just can't understand him. But I think it seems best to understand this is referring to the previously mentioned false prophets. You know, they, they haven't stood in the council. Later on, he goes on to say this in 21 through 22 of chapter 23, I did not send the prophets. Yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Now this tells us that the true prophet had access to the counsel of God. The decisions of which are the substance of their prophetic proclamation come from meeting with God, come from being in His counsel. Now, the word counsel here is the Hebrew word sowed, which means a session. That is a company of persons in close deliberation by implication, intimacy. This is a secret assembly. Now, there's many texts in Scripture that clearly depict a heavenly council, God, Yahweh, meeting with other gods in the council. This is speaking of the divine council. And it's made up of Yahweh and the sons of God. Daniel calls them watchers. Now, the idea of a divine council may sound strange to you because most Christians simply view God as the ruling God, Satan as an opposing Him, and Yahweh seen as the good deity, and Satan seen as the bad deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, it teaches there is a divine council, a ruling body of gods, consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. Now, many different cultures had the council of gods. The different thing with the biblical council is Yahweh is the supreme god, his word goes, always goes. There's no competition. And the other councils of gods, the gods are fighting to be top dogs, so to speak, in the council. If this idea of the divine council is new to you, I would encourage you to go to our website, go to the studies page. On the very bottom of the page, it says divine council viewpoint. Click that link. There's 17 messages there on the divine council. All right, it'll help you get an idea of what we're talking about here, what we mean by that. But 
this is important to understand that this is what prophets were. Prophets were someone who had met with God. They met with the council, and then they'd been sent out with a message. They're not public speakers. They're God's servants. Now, in the New Testament, prophets were gifted men who were second only to the apostles in the founding days of the church. And the prophet in the New Testament refers to one who has insight into divine things. They've met with God, and they speak them forth. But sometimes prophecy is also predictive. Now, I think too often we think that yeah, that's prophecy. It's predictive. They're predicting something. It's part, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Look at Acts 11, 27, 28. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one named Agabus stood up and foretold the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So Agabus gets up and he's foretelling something. So prophets spoke for God and sometimes it involved predicting the future. Not everything that Isaiah said was predictive, but sometimes they did that. So they gave present truth, future truth. When they spoke of the future, they needed to be how accurate? 100? 100%? 100%. That's pretty severe. The Bible says they needed to be 100% accurate or they die. Keep that in mind. That's, that's serious stuff. Okay, not 99.99999, not like COVID. You know, 100%, okay? Now, a contemporary writer, Ron McKenzie, who was a Presbyterian minister, he writes this. The most urgent need of the modern church is for the restoration of the prophetic ministry. And my question is, why? Do we need to hear from God? We have heard from God, okay? And it's even written down so we can, don't have to try to remember it. We can go back and look it up. We have the Scriptures. So why do we need a, a prophet? Is he going to add something different than this? If it's going to be different, then we need an addendum in the back of the boat. We need to keep adding things, you know. I don't get this. The pro- I think the thing is that he would not view a prophet as the mouthpiece of God. Or maybe he would. Well, you'll see. <laughs> Do we need more of the Word of God? I think the canon is all we really need. Well, he goes on to say this. There are no perfect prophets. There are very few perfect prophecies. Oh. So it's not from God then? I would expect that even experienced prophets get it wrong sometimes. Oh, so this is something you practice, and as you get good experience, you get better and better at it, right? Experienced prophets get it wrong. Not God's prophets. They don't get it wrong, people. Okay? I suspect that most prophets would be very happy if they got it right 90% of the time. An even larger percentage of prophecies from God will be slightly contaminated by something the prophet has added from his own heart. That would be called a false prophet, okay? This is normal even for experienced prophets because all prophets are human. They are, but they're speaking for God if they're biblical prophets. He goes on to say, we must also learn to reject prophecies without killing the prophet. The church should accept the mistake as a reminder that all prophets are human. 
The prophets should be glad to hear about their mistakes so they can learn from them. Well, that doesn't seem to line up with Scripture. Okay? God said if you're, you're not going to learn from your mistakes, you're going to die from your mistakes. Okay? Deuteronomy 18, 19-22. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, this is a prophet, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, who speaks in the name of other gods. So you've got this prophet. He's not saying what God told him. He's making up his own stuff or he's saying something from other gods. That same prophet shall die. He doesn't say, well, he'll learn from his mistakes and he'll get better as time goes on. Oh, that was then. Okay. (laughs) He says, and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? So the people, well, okay. How do we know which is God's and which is not God's? And that's a good question, right? This prophet saying he's speaking from God. He says this, when a prophet speaks in my name, in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. He doesn't say if he's only if he's 90% accurate, he's learning to give him time. No. If he's not accurate, he's not my prophet. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So according to scripture, a prophet is to be accurate 100% or he's to die. He's the mouth of God. He's speaking for God. This is not some public speaker who's just getting up giving you something. They're a prophet. No. This is God speaking to you. Remember, they didn't have the Bible. So how's God communicating what He wants with these people? The prophets are telling them. All right? This is the mouth of God. Look at Exodus 7.1. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Aaron? was to speak for Moses. Remember, Moses said, I can't speak, Lord, don't send me, send somebody, I can't speak. Here's Aaron. So, Moses is going to be like a god to Pharaoh. What he says is going to come to pass. And Aaron is going to be the prophet to Moses. He's going to be the mouthpiece. He's going to tell him. John Piper writes this. But of the spiritual gift of prophecy, it's different from the inspiration of Scripture. I don't think so. I really don't see it as different than inspiration because a prophet is the mouth of God. They're speaking for God. They're going to be inspired. Marvin Vincent is much more on on this thing, and he says this of prophecy. Prophecy is utterance under immediate divine inspiration, delivering inspired exhortation, instructions, or warning. The fact of direct inspiration distinguishes prophecy from teaching. You got that? So I hate to tell you, but my teaching is not inspired. I know, that's disappointing. (laughs) A prophet was inspired. See, before the completion of the revealed truth in the Scriptures, the prophets were inspired revealers of God's teaching to the churches. They told the infant churches what they should believe, what they should teach, how they should live. Their ministry was later superseded by the Scriptures. Because we have the Word of God now. We have it. Now, a lot of people want to argue that there's prophets today in a secondary sense. So, what is, exactly does that mean? 
and and some would argue this, and I think MacArthur argues along this line, aren't those who preach the word with power and authority prophets? No, they're preachers. And they're probably wrong. Okay? So if they claim to be prophets, get your stones ready, all right? They're not prophets unless they're speaking under inspiration directly from God. Now, are there prophets today who could write something that would have the authority of Scripture? No, there are not. John MacArthur says this, There are people who want to eliminate prophecy as still existing today. That's me. They have a problem. Because if they eliminate prophecy, then what do they say people are doing when they proclaim the Word? Uh, hello, teaching, preaching, talking about God's Word. So anytime you get up and you speak, you're a prophet? You're under inspiration? Does he think he's under inspiration when he's preaching? I hope not. That's what I would answer. I would say, John, I would just say they're teaching, they're preaching. Now, can we prove that prophecy ended in A.D. 70 and thus all the gifts? I think we can. If we take a close look at some verses in the Tanakh, because the Scriptures, I think, make this clear. I think most people just don't see it. All right? Well, let's start by looking at Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, we have the 70 years for the Babylonian captivity. It was just about over. Okay? In Daniel 9, 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he goes, hey, I I was reading Jeremiah and I figured this out that this is what Jeremiah is telling us about this prophecy. He calculated the number of years of the Babylonian captivity based on the prophecy of Jeremiah 29.10 and he knew the time was near. So he went to Yahweh in prayer asking him to remember his covenant and to restore Israel. Now listen, this is important, people. The restoration of Israel is at the heart and core of Daniel's prophecy. And when he talks about the restoration of Israel, he's not talking about national political Israel. He's talking about true Israel, the people of God. The angel was sent to speak to Daniel, and this is what he said. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. So Daniel was told that 70 weeks had been determined on his people, Israel, and the city Jerusalem. That's your people is Israel, the holy city is Jerusalem. And he says these six things would be accomplished, all right, once that happens. There's to finish transgression... Put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel was told this was happened by the end of that period. And one of the things here, you can, if you read them all, you understand what he's talking about. He's talking about this is the completion of redemption. And this happens at the coming of the Lord. All right? Now, he says, to seal both vision and profit. We're talking about prophecy. Let's focus on this one. If you've done much studying using commentaries, you know that there's very little that Bible commentaries or scholars agree on. Right? 
And that really, to me, gives great force to this phrase, because this phrase has almost unanimous agreement of scholars across the board. I mean, they, they're just, I haven't found any disagreement to what they're saying this thing means. The Hebrew commentaries are in agreement on the meaning of seal of vision and prophet. They say it means to give or reveal. It is the process of inspiration, but it's not just that. It also means to confirm by fulfilling the prophecy. So to seal up vision and prophet means no more prophecy is given, and the prophecy that has been given is all fulfilled. That's what he's talking about. Now, Kyle and Delich, who are highly respected Hebrew authorities, they state this in volume 9, page 44 of their commentary. Seal up vision and prophecy means prophecies and prophets are sealed when by the full realization of prophecies, prophecy ceases, no prophets anymore appear. It's done. Okay? So what does seal up vision and prophet mean? It means, Hebrew scholars agree that it means the end and complete fulfillment of prophecy. No more prophets, and what they have prophesied is all fulfilled. All right? A time of fulfillment, no more prophets. Now, here's what's fascinating. You guys know John Walvert is, right? Mr. Dispensationalist? All right? He says this. Probably seal of vision and prophecy is best understood to mean the termination of unusual direct revelation by means of vision and oral prophecy. See, even dispensationalists are getting it right. He's, first of all, he understands there that prophecy is direct revelation. He says the seal means no more is to be added and that what has been predicted will receive divine confirmation in the form of actual fulfillment. Walvert said that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay? <laughs> to seal up vision and profit. It clearly means to give prophecy to fulfill it. No more prophecy. What we have is already being fulfilled. Now, Daniel's prophecy then tells a time when all prophecy would cease to be given and what had been given would be filled. When is that going to be? Well, Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, according to verse 26. Let's compare Daniel 9, 25 through 27 with Matthew 24, 15 and following where Yeshua said the abomination of desolation and his coming would occur in that generation. All right. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with square and moat. But in a troubled time, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now that's Jerusalem he's talking about, the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, Desolations are decreed. Now, he says, the prince who is to come. Who is this prince? Well, some people say, well, this is the beast. That's the prince who is to come. But the nearest antecedent for the coming prince in verse 26 would carry us back to verse 25, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, who is cut off in verse 26. 
This is talking about Christ. Christ becomes the only one prince in this context. That's what it's talking about. Now, it says the people of the prince here, they're the responsible ones for the destruction of the city. So he's talking about the Jewish people, the people of the prince, and they're responsible for the destruction of the city and the temple. And when you look at all the facts of biblical and secular history are considered, you understand the Jews are the ones that started the war. They rebelled. They're the people who caused the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. All right, so that's what he is talking about here. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, the abomination of desolation. So he says in the middle of the 70th week, comes this abomination that makes desolate. When this happened, he said, prophecy ceased. Now we know from the teaching of Yeshua when this happened, in Matthew 24, 15, and 16, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, I wonder if he's talking about the same thing Daniel is. Oh yeah, he says, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, what we just read, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation is referring to the Roman army in the holy place, which is the city of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem. He says, when you see this, get out of there. Run. Flee. Get away. Now, Matthew 24, 21 says, then, what is then? Then being when the Roman army surround and laid siege to Jerusalem, which was AD 67 to 70. It was a three and a half year siege. And he says, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So, there is no tribulation, he says, that will equal what happened in AD 67 to 70. Prior to it, after it. So, I hate to tell you people, but the great tribulation is over. It happened in AD 67. 7 to 70, it was upon the Jewish people. If you want to read what happened during this time, get Josephus and read his wars, okay? And you will get sick to your stomach, all right, about the stuff that went on here. Inside the city was fighting. They were fighting with each other in the city. They were destroying their own supplies in the city. Mothers were eating their own children for hunger. I mean, it was just a horrible time, a three and a half year time. And it was judgment because of their sin. And Yeshua said in 2434, Truly I say to you, the you here are the people he is talking to. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Yeshua says, everything I just told you about the abomination and desolation is going to take place in this generation, the first century generation. Now some people try to twist the etymology of the word generation here to make it mean race. And they try to make Yeshua say that these things will not happen before the Jewish race has passed away. Well, linguistically, that won't fly because the word race is genos, and the word in our text is genea. Different words. But if it was true, if it was the word for race, there's no Jewish race today. We talked about that not that long ago. Okay, There is no Jewish race today. There's people who say they're Jews. They're not. The DNA doesn't bear this out. Okay, There's no Jewish race today. 
So there is no biblical or linguistic justification for their position. Generation does not mean race. Now, some say the generation that sees these signs will not pass away. The funny thing is the text doesn't say that. That's just adding to the text, okay? Yeshua used the demonstrative, this generation, right? Every time this is used in the New Testament, it always refers to something that's near in terms of time or distance. For example, if I said to you, this building is going to be remodeled. What building am I talking about? <laughs> the, the, the building in the future. The one next door, the one down the street. I said, this building. Any of you, would anybody question that? Well, how come this generation, and we're like, oh, that's some other generation. He didn't say that generation. If I was to say to you, that building is going to be remodeled, you'd say, uh, can I get a little context, please? What building? Because that means not this one. What building? He didn't say that generation. This one, the one I'm talking to. And what people do with that today is, is just hilarious. He's talking to them because he's coming in their generation. All right? That, this generation. Everything he said he's spoken of is going to happen in that generation it's going to all come to pass. The Great Tribulation, the Second Coming, it's all happening. So Daniel tells us that his vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, which would bring an end to all prophecy. Right? That's what Daniel told us. This is exactly what Luke says in Luke 21.20. 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, here we go again. we got this army around Jerusalem. It's funny how people make this today, you know? And I'm like, well, we don't really have to worry because we're not in Jerusalem, right? We're a long ways away. If it's happening over there, it's not going to hurt us. Then know that its desolation has come near, Jerusalem's. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, if this is worldwide, fleeing to the mountains is not going to help a whole lot, right? Maybe postpone it a little bit. Flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. All that is written here refers to prophecy. So he is saying, listen, all prophecy is fulfilled in this destruction. In other words, everything that was predicted pointed to this time, and it's all done. There's no more prophecy yet to be fulfilled once AD 70 comes about. Now there's things that are ongoing, Okay, the city is still open, the gospel is still going out, people are coming into the city, but prophecy has been fulfilled. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill everything that was written. That happened in AD 70. So that ended all prophecy. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that prophecy will end when the perfect comes. All right? Love never ends, as for prophecies they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, what is the perfect? That's a crucial phrase that we need to understand. No, it's not talking about my wife. Okay? That which is perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How you interpret... <laughs> Watch and learn, boys. <laughs> how you interpret verse 8, 11, and 12 is all dependent on how you interpret the perfect. 
So we need to try to understand this phrase in order to unlock the passage. Now, there's several interpretations, as you can imagine, people telling you what the perfect is, right? What is it? Well, some say it's the completion of the Bible. This is a real common interpretation. They tell us that in the first century, they didn't have the New Testament as we have it. That's true. They relied on the teachings of the prophets, the evangelists, the apostles, and others who spoke the Word of God. But as the the written Word of God came into form, we didn't need these anymore. All right, so they passed away. So it was the claim of those who teach this that the Word of God, as we think of it, came into being. As the written Word of God was put down, the gifts began to fade. We didn't need prophecy anymore. It's written down. It's codified. We're good. All right, that's a common interpretation. Others say it's the rapture of the church. All right, this is a a really popular, one of the more popular views. They say the rapture of the church, that's the perfect, all right? Others say it's the maturity of the church. This view states that when the church reaches maturity, that's the perfect thing. This is just another way, really, of identifying the second coming, and that's the other view. It's the second coming. When the Lord comes, that's the perfect, and then all these things will go away, okay? Uh, The other one, it's the new heavens and new earth. All right, we get that. So when Revelation 21, 22, the new Jerusalem is the perfect. Okay, so which is it? Is it the completion of the canon? Is it the rapture, maturing of the church? Is it the second coming, new heavens and new earth? Which one is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Listen. The perfect refers to the maturity of the body at the resurrection, what happened, which happened at the second coming in AD 70, bringing in the new heavens and new earth, which closed the canon of Scripture. These are synchronous events, people. Okay? So yes, pick one. I don't care. I'm not going to fight with you about it. You know, it doesn't matter. They, they happen together. So yes, when these things happen, the perfect came. Now the word perfect is the Greek word teleon. And the literature of the New Testament usually equates the Greek word teleon with maturity. And it's eight occurrences in Paul's epistles, six are translated mature. The phrase the perfect is often used in the Greek language to speak of a purpose or goal. Now in this context, it's the goal of Yahweh for the church. So what was Yahweh's goal for the church? It was that it be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among the brothers. Now, this took place in AD 70 when the Lord returned, bringing in the new heavens and new earth, where we see Him face to face. So the coming again of our Lord for His people brought them to full maturity, and the canon was closed. I think most scholars now are in agreement that the Bible was all written prior to AD 70. Zane Hodges was a personal friend of mine. He was on the translating committee for the New King James Bible. And so I asked him, what was the opinion of the group that put that together about, you know, when it was the last time it was written? He said everybody on that committee believed that everything was finished being written before AD 70. And Zane was a dispensationalist, so, you know, he still held that that was all completed then, all right? There was no canon beyond 80, 70, nothing was written, you know, as far as the Scriptures. Now, I know that people are going to say, oh, the Revelation was written in 96. No, it wasn't, okay? There's a lot of proof of that, all right? 
All right, if that's true, then what Paul tells us in verse 9 and 10 is this. The reason the spiritual gifts are transitory is that when we come into a face-to-face relationship with Christ, we enter into perfect maturity, and there's no longer any need for spiritual gifts because the body's complete. Gifts were for the purpose of maturing the body, and when the body is complete, we no longer need gifts. Look at Paul says in Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that's the purpose. It's building up the body until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Now, according to this passage, the gifts were to be used to bring the church from a state of infancy to adulthood. The word translated mature here in verse 13 is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, talion. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the body. Once the body is mature, we no longer need spiritual gifts. Now, the eschatological emphasis of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12 must not be overlooked if Paul's argument and point here are to be properly appreciated. Paul says in verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith. The word until here is the Greek word makri, which means up to a certain point. It's a preposition of extent denoting the terminus. There again you have this termination. He says until, when we reach this point, then we don't need any more. Daniel says prophecy would cease. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4. If seal up vision and prophecy means to give and fulfill all prophecy, and if all prophecy is not yet fulfilled, then all prophecy has not yet been given. That would mean there's still prophecy being given, which would mean the Bible is not complete, which would mean the charismatics are right, and which would mean every time you hear somebody say, hey, this guy gave a prophecy, you got to run over and find out what it is and add it to the back of the book because there's something new. Okay? Man, that could get really confusing, couldn't it? I mean, it could get very confusing because you've got to keep adding that. Oh, that's equal. That, that prophecy is still being given. Okay, prophets are mouths of God. He's adding to this book. That would be, I don't want to be in that kind of situation, people. All right? I don't want to be. The charismatic gifts of the Spirit were to continue throughout the last days of the church, or the last days of the Old Covenant. When that ended and the church was consummated, they were, they were done. Look at Paul, um, Acts chapter 2, 16 through 20 here. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. All right, He's just quoting what Joel says. In the last days. The last days are not the last days of the church because the church has no last days because the church has an everlasting covenant. The last days are the last days of Israel. All right, It shall be, God declared, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants, on my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of Yahweh comes, the great and magnificent day." This prophecy is prophesying a 40-year period. 
He talks about the last days began. We had these miraculous signs. But this stuff he's talking here, the blood and vapor and smoke, this is destruction. This is from Pentecost to Holocaust. And the charismata were to continue throughout the coming of this 40-year period until the awesome day of the Lord. If the Lord has not come and the last days are still in progress, then the gifts are still around. And all the revelatory gifts of the Spirit would still be around and the canon of inspired Scripture is not complete. But if the canon of Scripture was complete in the first century, then the gift of prophecy ceased as well. To further emphasize this point, look at me at 1 Corinthians 1, 5-8. through 8. That in every way you are enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. The Corinthians, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Yeshua. So they have these gifts and they're waiting for the second coming. The Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Yahweh, Yeshua the Christ. Now, are the revealing here, the end and the day of the Lord, still future? If so, then the gifts of the Spirit would still be available today because it says they would not come short of any of them while they were waiting on the return. Well, let's remember the principle here of audience relevance. Paul was speaking to the Corinthians in the first century. They were eagerly waiting for the second coming of the day of the Lord. When the Lord returned in AD 70, the last days ended, so did the gifts. Now, believing that Christ has not yet returned makes holding the position that some of the gifts have ceased indefensible. Okay? Because the only time it talked about them ending is at the second coming. Now, believing the last days has ended in AD 70 and that the destruction of Jerusalem was God's revelation of Yeshua the Christ completely removes the dilemma and the inconsistency. But preterists are not consistent unless they believe the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased and the futurists are not consistent unless they believe that all of the gifts are still available. You can't say that the perfect has not yet come, but the gifts of prophecy has ceased. That's inconsistent. Let's look at some scriptures that show, again, when the prophecy would cease. Let's go back to Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. This is where it starts for the Hebrew people, okay? Abraham. Look to Abraham, his father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So Isaiah here is calling Israel to remember the Abrahamic promise. Remember from where you came. And the Abrahamic promise involved the redemption of Israel. And again, I'm talking about true spiritual Israel, not political Israel. So who is Zion here? Well, Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. He says the Lord comforts Zion. It's the bride of Christ. It's the true Israel of God. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in 12.22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. 
to the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. Innumerable angels and festival gathering. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now we know this is a messianic prophecy because Paul quotes it in Romans 10, 15. Now watch the next verse, verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Now, Isaiah says that Israel would be in a face-to-face, eye-to-eye position when God, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, redeemed Israel. Israel was to see eye-to-eye when the Lord restored her. Now, when was the Lord going to restore Israel? Well, it was at the consummation of the 70 weeks of Daniel. We told you that's what Daniel 9 is all about, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Paul says that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit would cease when Israel would see face to face. Right? 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Therefore, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased at the consummation of the 70 weeks. And we can't divorce Israel's promise of seeing eye to eye from 1 Corinthians 13. And therefore, we must acknowledge the first century miraculous gifts have ceased. This is connected with Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 62.10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear the stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. So he's saying, say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation comes. His reward is with him. And then in Matthew 16, Yeshua says this, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glorious Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So whose salvation was Yeshua to be? He was to be Israel's salvation. Is he the promised redeemer of Isaiah 62, 11? I don't think anyone would argue that, but in Matthew 16, 27, Yeshua quotes from Isaiah 62, 11. Isaiah 52, 8 and 62, 11 both speak of the same time and event, the redemption of Israel at the coming of the Lord. Yeshua, quoting Isaiah 62, 11, said that his coming for salvation of Israel, they would see face to face, it would be a time when the people of that day would see it. Because he says here, he says, he's going to repay each person. That's exactly what he says in Isaiah. And he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. So he's connecting this all to his generation. When Israel saw face to face, the miraculous would cease. And this was to happen in the lifetime of the first century disciples at AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Prophecies are going to pass away, he says, 
when the perfect comes. So what are we seeing? Paul said the prophecy would cease when the perfect has come. Daniel said prophecy is to end at the destruction of Jerusalem. We know Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Therefore, the perfect of verse 10 has come. The perfect referred to the second coming of Christ that took place in AD 70, bringing in the new heavens and new earth where we see Him face to face. So the coming again of our Lord for His people brought them into full maturity. It closed the canon of Scripture, which means that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have come to an end. The gifts were for the period of the last days. When the last days ended, so did the gifts. People, biblical prophecy, a prophet is a mouth of God. That ended when the canon ended. There's no more prophecies. We don't have to run around looking for anything, hearing new voices. We just have to know the Scriptures. That's all we need to know. All right? God has completed His Word to us. It is finished. Jude talks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, I pray that people would take the time to dig into these different texts and examine them, Lord. And see if this is so. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word when we just spend the time in it digging it. Give us all, Lord, the heart of Bereans. That we would not believe things we hear without searching them out. Digging through the scriptures to finding if what we hear is so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.